Hi, it's Lynn Galadner, and welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a writer and entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've learned that we succeed through inspiration from storytelling and deep and mutually beneficial relationships. This show began in 2018 after my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I wanted a way to capture his stories and record his insights. It's grown since then to share stories of how people around the world make meaning from very ordinary pursuits. Now I focus on sharing the stories of writers, authors, and those in the world of publishing to learn how and why we create stories that help us make meaning from the mundane. I'm a former journalist and marketing entrepreneur, and I've been teaching writing for more than two decades. As a writing coach, I help authors build their brands and share their words. If you'd like to write with me, check out my offerings at lynngaladner.com. And you'll find more episodes of this podcast at makemeaning.org, as well as on every podcast platform you can think of. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Make Meaning Podcast. Now, on to the show. I could not put down Martha Ann Toll's debut novel, Three Muses, a historical fiction story that skirts the Holocaust and focuses on a child survivor and his lifetime love, a New York City ballerina. It is a stunning book. This book won the Petrocourt Prize for Finely Crafted Fiction and has received glowing tributes since it came out in September 2022. Martha writes fiction, essays, and book reviews, and says she reads anything that's not nailed down. She brings a long career in social justice to her work covering authors of color and women writers as a critic and interviewer at NPR Books, The Washington Post, Point Magazine, The Millions, and elsewhere. Martha also publishes short fiction and essays in a wide variety of outlets, and she is a member of the board of directors of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. I'm thrilled today to welcome Martha Ann Toll to the Make Meaning Podcast. Well, hey, Martha, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you, Lynn. I'm really honored to be here. So I love to begin by asking guests to recall their earliest memory of writing. What is yours? Wow. Well, I was an early writer. I bet a lot of your guests say that. (laughs) I will tell you my first early memory of reader. I was not an early reader. I learned in first grade. And the hardest word for me was the word have, H-A-P-E. Okay. Silent E. And then very soon after I was writing, I was writing plays for my three sisters and keeping a diary. Wow. And you have, tell me about your mom. Your mom factored into this too, right? Yes. Well, both my parents were creatures of the written word. My mom was a professional editor. She was a copy editor primarily, but also an editor. And she worked at our dining room table. In those days, everything was on paper. So at one end of the dining room table were her galley proofs, and at the other end was the laundry. Ah, I love that. I love that. I told you before the show, I could not put down Three Muses. I just absolutely loved this book. And I, I've i been um, hawking it to people and telling people to to buy it. So what inspired this novel? I mean, it's exquisite. It's To me, it's totally original. It's beautifully crafted. So I'd love to hear the story behind it. Well, that is so generous of you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. So I think as in many novels, there are multiple inspirations. One obvious inspiration was that I took ballet as a young child and I absolutely adored it. And I took Uh it to professional school so I could watch 
the professional dancers rehearse, which was thrilling. Yeah. Um, the downside was I had no talent <laughs> and they would not advance me after a very oh. young age. Oh, so okay. I pretty much finished at that school by the age of 12 or 13. Okay. But it left a lasting imprint. That's one. Um, the other, I would say, is is very family and friend oriented. I grew up in a secular Jewish family, and so the Holocaust was my first introduction to Judaism in many ways. Wow. My family was related to Holocaust survivors, and I went to school with students whose parents were Holocaust survivors, and it was extremely part of my growing up. It wasn't mm -hmm. always explicit, but it was discussed. Mm -hmm. There were in-laws that had tattoos on their arms from being at Auschwitz. It was just part of the atmosphere. And mm -hmm. I, I was always interested in, as I got older, it became more and more important for me to understand it to mm. the extent any of us can. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to really unpack that a little bit. Like, you said that the Holocaust was one of your first introductions to Judaism. So tell me more about that. Well, I don't have a formal Jewish education. I went for a couple of years to Sunday school. But as I said, you pretty much couldn't grow up in a more secular family than the family that I grew up in. Okay. On the other hand, particularly on my father's side of the family, they were extremely culturally Jewish in the way that you, and a lot of the stereotypes, very that warm, extended family, a lot of food. Mm -hmm. really big emphasis on education. But the Holocaust was something I always knew about. Okay. And I can't go back far enough to be able to say my mother's first cousin, whom we knew quite well growing up, lost her family in Auschwitz. And that was just something that I always knew. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So I know that you have another novel on the horizon. Is it similar in theme? Can you tell me about it? Sure. Well, I'm happy you asked. I'm really excited about it. It's called Duet for One. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say some of the tone is similar, but maybe it's a little bit lighter. It's about musical Philadelphia. I'm from Philadelphia and it's an immersive dive into the classical music scene in Philadelphia, but it's really a love story. And that's mm. the thing I should be talking about most to a lot of readers. Philadelphia is really the pinnacle of the classical music world in the United wow. States as it concerns string players. I was trained on the viola, so oh. parts of it are autobiographical. Uh-huh. Interesting. So yeah, let's talk about both of these. So, and you know, one of the things I was just working on my Substack, I do a weekly newsletter for the writing community. Love your newsletter. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. But I was just working on one about how my novel, Woman of Valor, came to be. And I was sort of going back through what the inspirations were and how I found my characters. And I even talked about a novel I wrote like 23 years ago that will never see the light of day. But those characters and settings were based on people I knew and places I'd been. And so tell me a little bit about that in relation to both of your novels. Like, you know, how did you develop the characters in Three Muses? And obviously the ballet, you know, you said that was an, an early experience of yours, but, and the Holocaust as well. But tell me a little bit about how you develop your characters and, and even the love story in Three Muses. I mean, there's certainly a love story there too. Yes. Yeah. Well, I guess the first thing I would say is after my flame out in ballet, which <laughs> I, I don't like to call it a flame out because it was such a rich experience. I went all in 
in classical music. So I trained as a viola, professional viola player and I majored in music in college and it was deeply part of my experience. And when I, I had always been writing, but when I got really serious about writing fiction, my first goal was to get music on the page and it is still a goal. Uh-huh. And then I, when I started writing about ballet, it was a similar goal. These are two ephemeral art forms that, that take place in a, uh, in a moment in time and can't be saved. So that's okay. a writing challenge for me. As to the characters, I would say John, who's the protagonist in Three Muses, his story is, he's something of a composite character, people that I knew personally mm-hmm. who did survive the Holocaust. Katya, and he came to me sort of fully formed, and Katya also came fully formed. She's the prima ballerina. I don't really think there was a model for her. Just arrived. Yeah. And for my second novel, I have a better sense of origin stories, but these Uh kind of arrived fully formed. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. So I love to talk to writers about their process. And so Mm -hmm. do you you map out your books? Do you sort of feel your way? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it's funny. I I think, you know, I'm a lawyer and I ran a an or a nonprofit for many, many years. And in my that life I'm very organized and do outlines and plan uh-huh. things. In my writing <laughs> life, it's chaotic. Ah. Um, so no, I don't map out anything. I usually start in the middle because like many writers, I find beginnings and endings so terribly difficult. Yeah. And one of my writing mantras is we should write what we can because we're very good at saying what we cannot write. <laughs> so I like that. On. So I usually yeah. start in the middle. It's very, very iterative. There's a lot of trial and error. And a lot of things change along the way. And that certainly was the case in Three Muses. I started in 2010. And the basic concept was there, but not the details. I had, like you spoke earlier before we got online, that you have a novel in the drawer. I definitely had a novel in the drawer. Many of us (laughs) have been writing for a long time before we get published. So I was in search of a structure. And when I found the myth of the three muses Mm -hmm. that gave a structure to the book that I was looking for. I think I had the characters first and the structure came second. Interesting. Interesting. And I know you say you love revision. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, I don't have any formal writing training. And so I feel like my apprenticeship in writing has come through revising. Mm -hmm. I'm a person who doesn't, it's it's the opposite of many writers. I don't usually end up with something long enough in a first draft. So I have to expand it. Mm. I do a lot of expanding and revision, but I also am a ruthless self-editor. With Three Muses, I had a lot of issues around the order in which the story should be told. And it took me many tries to get that the way I wanted it. And I also ended up cutting almost 100 pages of backstory. Oh my God, wow. I realized was slowing the book down. Um, You know, things that became one sentence had been 20 pages. Oh my God. So (laughs) I did a lot of preparing. And then I guess my last revision for anything I'm doing is asking myself the question, is every single word necessary and in service of the plot? Because if not, it's got to (laughs) go. Oh my God, I love you so much. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Because I, I teach writing all the time. And I actually just was speaking to some writers yesterday about how you have to ask what is essential. And mm-hmm. and we were talking about dialogue, but also just in general about writing that you have to look at, you know, like, is again, is this moving the story along? Is this essential mm-hmm. here? Because mm-hmm. you can have a gorgeous sentence and fall in love with it, but maybe it doesn't fit in this piece. And so... And I always like to say, you know, I save I save things that I cut out in like earlier 
drafts or you know different versions of the document, I never go back to them. I mean, I always think, oh, I know, this is I used I'll to use it. it. I know. I always save files. And I never even look at them. Right. That take one minute just to say a specific yeah. anecdote. Yes. Yeah. We've talked about this is very much a book about ballet, and for the first like three or four years that I was working on it, the central ballet was Swan Lake, which is a very famous ballet, and it's. Yeah. You know, 100 years old, a lot of, anyway, spent yeah. a lot of time out of one morning I woke up and said, somebody's going to read this book and they're going to know a lot more than Swan Lake than I will ever know. Plus, P.S. Oh. has nothing to do with the plot of my book. So right. I had to ditch it. It was a lot of uh, tossing stuff out. And I ended up choreographing all my own ballets. Oh my God. So wow. everything is fictional and it was a huge challenge, but it was also liberating because then I could use them in service, the plot, like the titles of the ballets are meant to move the plot along. And I wasn't hampered by somebody else's plot. Like I love Swan Lake, but it really had nothing to do with the music. Yeah. That was a big step and a lot of work. That is so cool. I had no clue. That is, that's really, really neat. So did you have to do research into both ballet and the Holocaust for that book? Well, I, one answer to that question is that I had been doing it all of my life. So after I stopped studying ballet seriously, I was still, my mother was really wonderful about taking me to ballets. As I said, I grew up in Philly and a lot of the stuff that was premiering in New York was tested out first in Philly. So that was a great opportunity. But also I read ballet reviews all the way through and I read about it. So I really kept up with the field, I would say. And, And it's similar to say that about the Holocaust. I've been reading about the Holocaust since I can remember. Yeah, I mean, and really deeply. As I got older, I started talking, trying to get more stories because each story is so harrowing and different and unique. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot of speaking to people and a lot of um, reading. But when I was actually writing the book, I stayed away from both those subjects because I wanted to be, I wanted my characters to be my own characters. Yeah. So I ballet binge since I got published. <laughs> the backlog of a lot of books I hadn't read, but. Wow. Sometimes you might have the same feeling when you're writing. You don't really want to be influenced by other books. Yeah, no, that's so true. It's really true. And I I mean, I read a lot of books for this podcast. And so I usually have a stack, you know, that's like, okay, I got to read this before I interview this person next week or whatever. I also do developmental editing. And so that's reading. And so I'm sitting there. I'm doing a client right now and I actually really love her book. And so to me, like usually when I wake up in the morning, I read and then I do my writing. And so I, I've been waking up and doing her developmental edit because I'm enjoying the story so much. So yeah, sometimes the the reading has to do with my work. I find that when I travel, I buy books by authors that are local to the place. And that's the way I get to know the place. That. Isn't that yeah. cool? It's so cool. It's just well, so funny. It sounds like you do the same thing. I go to the, the independent bookstore and uh, then there's always a shelf of local authors. And yeah, all this cool stuff out there that I never would have read otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so I spent last summer in Scotland for a month and I bought a ton of Scottish authors. I couldn't read them all when I was there. So I brought them home and I'm actually going back for a writer's retreat. So I'm like, okay, which ones am I taking with me? Because I'm going to be there again. Um, So yeah, and this next novel that I'm writing, because I have one coming out, but I'm working on the next one, um, partially takes place in Scotland. So I'm like, yeah, I could be reading that, but I don't really want to read them right now. I just want to write the book, you know, and then then get back to it. And was that a writing retreat? What is the writing retreat? So 
Yeah. So the one that I'm going on, somebody else is doing and I'm going to be a participant and it's very generative focused. When I lead writers retreats, I, I want them to be generative. I don't want people to take, you know, go away somewhere to critique everybody else's writing. I feel like that's a huge burden. Yes. So it's nice when the instructor gives you feedback, but I don't think that your peers should be obligated to. But last summer when I was in Scotland, it was a, a self, a, I guess a self-gifted writing sabbatical. So I rented a house in the Highlands for a month and uh, learned how to drive on the wrong side of everything and had a really great time. So it was really fun. Thrilling. That sounds yeah. thrilling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wait, let's get back to you. This is about okay. you. So I want to talk about Martha Antoll. Um, So tell me a little bit about your publishing journey. I'd love to hear about, you know, you wrote this book. I know it took a long time. And then what was your process in finding your publisher? Mm-hmm. Well, I had I've written a couple of books before. This book, like some of my previous books, I was lucky enough to get a literary agent. Uh-huh. And she in, and with this book, she did. And again, my previous books had not been published today. Oh. But this agent was extremely helpful in that she took me through very intensive revisions that were, I think, made it a much better book. And she had a great style she she wasn't a line editor so much as we need more scenes about this okay look in the future it was it was very it was as you would say generative uh-huh. she didn't really demonstrate any interest in in sending it to independent publishers and i always thought it should go to independent publishers so we had an amicable divorce uh-huh. and by this time i was starting to place in some contests the book was oh, starting nice. to place a contest so i was kind of excited about that. Yeah. So Eagle House Publishing is my publisher and I love them. They have a contest called the Petrichor Prize for Finely Crafted Fiction. So I put my book in for that and lightning struck. I won the contest and the contest comes with publication. Nice. It was a long journey, but in the end, I feel like I landed in the right place. So I'm very grateful. Awesome. And is that the same publisher for yes. Duet for One? Yes. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Very, very cool. So you did that unagented. You just were submitting to contests. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, There's so many. Everybody has a different experience and not every, every, I think even from book to book, people change what they do. So I guess very individual. I've actually read research that says or projects, I guess I would say that the days of, you know, staying with the same publisher for book after book after book Mm -hmm. are limited and that, you know, all writers are going to be seeing that they're going to have to shop around and find new representation with subsequent books. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I really think that's true. And, you know, I try to pay attention to the industry. I just feel like the big, the very big conglomerate publishers are undergoing a lot of change right now. Yeah. That's what it looks like to me. I'm not sure. Yeah. So what has been your process now that the book is out in in marketing and speaking and going in front of your audience? Well, first of all, it's very thrilling because I thought about getting published for so long and, it t- and, and then what happened was so thrilling. <laughs> so I've done a combination of things. I've done bookstore events, which are really wonderful. And I try uh-huh. to do those in collaboration with somebody else because I think it just works better than being a talking head. Yeah. I also do a lot of interviewing myself. So I've done bookstore events. I've done podcasts. I've reached out to podcasters. And it's, I think podcasts are really fun. And I love uh-huh. listening to literary podcasts. I had a publicist who was very helpful in reaching out to, quote, traditional media. I did some of my own work, for example, into the ballet media. I'm a book critic as well. So I oh. reached out to a couple of the big ballet magazines and I write for them. And mm-hmm. that 
brought me to their attention and they also reviewed my book. So as a critic, I write for a pretty wide variety of organizations. So that helped, but less than you might think because there are, as there should be some pretty strict ethical rules about who can get reviewed and how you get reviewed. So I've done pretty much anything you can think of. (laughs) A lot of different things. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, I love seeing your social media posts about where you're speaking and with whom. And and that's really cool. So I'm probably going to want to pick your brain a bit after we, yeah, we finish the podcast. Absolutely. I'm, I'm here for you too. <laughs> that's awesome. You that's so cool. You kind of learn or make the world by walking or something. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the truth is that writers are really generous and really help each other out. And I just think that's such a beautiful part of this industry. It's it's really lovely to see. I agree. And I'm really, it's a core value of mine to pay it forward. I mean, people have helped me along the way and I'm very committed to helping that's- others. That's awesome. That's super cool. So, you know, before we finish our conversation, I always like to ask what advice you might offer to aspiring writers who are listening to this episode. Yes. I think, you know, there's all these kind of cliche, not cliches, but axioms you could say, you know, the only difference between an author and a, a writer or an unpublished writer is they got a publishing contract. Yeah. There's really no difference. So yeah. I think you should, I think people should honor their own writing, honor the uh, time for their writing. I believe in getting your tush in the chair because Uh inspiration doesn't really come, you know, randomly. It's a lot about work. And I'm absolutely fanatic about persistence. Mm -hmm. And and a corollary to that is there's so much rejection in the field. And I had to really do a major mental turnaround to recognize that rejection is what's normal. And I love that advice, trying to get 100 rejections a year. I think it's really good advice. Yeah. I I think about that all the time because that means you have to be submitting. And so- You know, that just, and the likelihood of getting a hundred rejections if you make a hundred submissions is slim because something will be accepted, you know? When you were submitting Three Muses, how many times or places did you have to send it before you got the prize? Well, my agent sent it, I'm sure, to every major publisher in New York. And then I sent it out to a number of independent publishers. So I don't have a good number. I'd say 15 to 18, yeah, 20, something like that. It's it's really a persistence game. I mean, getting published is about sticking in and just and seeing it through. And when you get down, pull, pulling yourself back up and to keep going, you know, because it's that all subjective. Really, it, I mean, the persistence, I kept thinking I must really want to do this because <laughs> I had a lot of rejections. But I also think that we have to remind ourselves as writers, this is extremely subjective. Yeah. And, you know, the person, the editor who's rejecting you, their neighbor in the next desk over might have accepted them. Right. And that's just a fact of life. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. The last thing I want to ask you is about your writing routine. So tell me like what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. It's been a little chaotic since my book came out because I'm just doing a lot of traveling. Yeah. So I would like to say I'm a morning writer. I prefer writing in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that is always my preference. And I do believe in writing every day, but that's observed in the breach sometimes times. And I believe strongly that reading is deeply part of my writing routine. And I'm constantly reminding myself that if I want to take off a couple hours a day to read, that's part of the work. Yeah. And the other thing I'm doing, especially now that it feels a little safer post, if we're not post pandemic, but it feels a little safer to be out in the world, is trying to go to more book events because you always learn something Hmm. from hearing another author speak. So I'm kind of been ramping that up lately. 
That's very cool. I'm sure you're you're taking mental notes or just absorbing what other people are doing, getting ideas, you know, for your own events, but also maybe yeah. for future writing, you know? It is. I think what you can't, it's not like a one-to-one correlation, but last week I lived in Washington, D.C., and I went to an event at the Czech Embassy. It was free and it's beautiful writer was there who I had never heard of. He's probably very famous in the Czech Republic. And he was, I just learned so much from listening to him. I thought, oh gosh, you know, that's inspiring. That <laughs> is so cool. And do you meet people at these events too? Like yes. make writer friends? Yeah. Yes. Like build your network? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I try to do that. I didn't have an opportunity to build my network until I had retired from my job running the social justice organization. I just had no time. So it's something I'm trying to do more assiduously now. I love it. I love it. Well, Martha Antoll, it has been such a pleasure. I'm so thrilled to have you on the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you. I, it's been wonderful to be here. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. And please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org or lynngaladner.com.